Well, hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today, you might be intrigued by the topic of fun and games, uh, I've got Dr. Neil Krowitz with me, a gentleman I've known for a number of years, and I think the last time we saw each other was at a mutual friend's wedding. And so Neil has done some amazing stuff over the time, and asked him to come on board the show and just share uh, with you some of the neat ideas that he's had. Well, first of all, Neil, welcome. Oh, hi, G. Mark. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing just fine. And so tell everybody a little bit about yourself. You run Hacker Factor. You have a blog. You have a, you know, we're doing a video, although right now people can't see the video, but you're like in the middle of a giant server room. Which Oh, I'm no, sure that's a green screen behind me. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to see my messy office. <laughs> <laughs> See, I run uh, Hacker Factor, which I specialize in non-classical and weird uh, computer forensics research and development. I have a popular blog, which uh, bit popular just means that like 12 or more people read it. I do a lot of work with uh, digital media analysis, and I run the Photo Forensics Online Photo Analysis Service. Created that. I've also, outside of Photo Forensics and Hacker Factor, I've built hundreds of internet services. I run a half dozen other ones and some lesser known web services. All right. I mean, Facebook.com ought to be coming available pretty soon. Everything moves over to Meta, right? Are they going to abandon that, you think, or what? Uh, you know, I, I wish they did. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to go the way like MySpace, yo. I remember we used to have a Facebook page back in the day. That was back in 2021. That was just before the big one. So the photo forensics sound interesting. So, of course, our audience here, CISOs, people who are in security leadership roles or aspiring to security leadership. So we could cover a lot of really cool stuff. But my thought is let's focus our conversation on some of the cool stuff you've done that could be of value to somebody in a security leadership role. Now, you, you had mentioned about Hacker Factor doing computer forensics, R&D, and things like that. And some of our folks who are in our audience have forensics backgrounds, some of them are getting there, but what's a forensics R&D all about? What, what, what do you get there? When most people talk about computer forensics, they think like uh, recovering deleted files, going through logs, that sort of thing. I'm looking at stuff where there's no real established solution, like uh, digital photo analysis. When I started doing that, no one was doing that, or almost nobody. Doing a video analysis, diving into it, doing not just Word documents or uh, file analysis, but actually dive in and finding the comments and the text that people thought was deleted, but is still sitting there. Yeah, and that's interesting. I remember there's all kinds of stuff that you thought was redacted. I mean, I can remember even government documents where they had PDFs where they basically just put a black blob on top of the text. And if you went ahead and you opened it up for whether 503, if you're uh, visually impaired, you could get all that text right underneath it. It's like, hello, McFly. You just select it with your uh, cursor, copy it to the clipboard, paste it into mm -hmm. a text document, and you can see the unredacted text. Yeah. Now, have the vendors kind of fixed all these things, or do you think that uh, folks that are out there running security enterprises need to assess what they have in their um, approved application list to make sure that the people that they work with aren't making these same blunders? You know, uh, I've always been of the belief that until you make the mistake yourself, you're not going to realize that there's a mistake to be made. And so as much as people are often told to remove or to redact uh, this information and how to actually remove it, those rectangles are always going to appear. 
plenty of examples out there, uh, and we hear about them almost every year. You know, some legal document got released that was redacted, and you can pull the information out. Or you get things like a recent case of the social security numbers that were in that website that the journalists just happened to stumble across, find, pulled out. Yeah, and, and so, of course, interesting, we can go ahead, if we're using Microsoft Exchange or Outlook, there are different rules you can set up, and it's basically, it's listed under DLP, but they're trying to lock in on things that could be personal information. So in the United States, social security number, typically the nine digits have the hyphens after the first three and then the next two block. Social insurance numbers in Canada, a little bit different, you know, and they could be paginated, if you will, different ways. But sometimes you get false positives, and okay, that's a little bit of an annoyance, but the false negatives are, of course, the real problem is stuff that gets passed. And it says, well, it was just nine digits. Yeah, but I got rid of the hyphens to, to save bits because they're kind of conserving bits these days. Uh, and, and then things get through. So if we take a look from the concept of the idea of data loss prevention, digital forensics, yep. uh, where do you see those meeting and what types of precautions should an effective security leader take to utilize either commercial or private tools and maybe even spot check stuff to make sure that we're not leaking things that we don't know about. So uh, I love the spot checking aspect of it. One of the things that I often tell people is to put fake data into your real data. And this way, when something gets released, when something gets leaked, you can see, is my fake data there? And if so, you know it came from you. Otherwise, it came from someone else. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sound like an old Tom Clancy novel where they had taken this sensitive document and they had an exotic, exciting ending and they made it a little bit different for every single recipient. So whatever one worked its way into the press, they said, you know, gotcha. We know who, yep. who, who done it. One of the things that I do when I uh, develop websites is I don't just make the website with the user interface and all that. Uh, I also throw in little traps, things that are supposed to catch people who are trying to attack it. So, you know, how did they get into the database? How did they find whatever? Usually, if you run a website, people are constantly hitting against it, trying to scan, looking for vulnerabilities. And I've taken a forensic viewpoint of it, of trying to identify when they're coming in, who are they, what are they trying to get? And if I can block them, block them. But, you know, if you block someone, then that just means they're going to keep hitting their head against the wall. What can I do to stop them from doing that? Maybe I can play games with them. Maybe I can give them data that will suck up some of their time. And so uh, a good example of this is an Etsy password. Every website I create has an Etsy password file. It doesn't matter where you put it in the URL. If you are asking for an Etsy password, I will give you a password file. And it's a fake password file. It's just a static file that I serve up. Uh, the one that I serve or have been serving for more than 20 years has one word per password. It cracks real easily with like tools like John the Ripper. And if you lay out the cracked passwords in the order that they're written in the file, it says, you are a total loser. Your mother says you are very special. Mm, but, but what about those of us who really are special? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I once had a uh, guy write in to me saying, by any chance is your root password you? <laughs> now, I, I didn't respond to him, but I really wanted to. I wanted to ask him uh, if he cracked the others. Yeah, uh, I just like I just go in for root. That's all I care. I don't yep. need root. Don't need anything else. All the rest is so lame. They're loser passwords. But um, but you know that this person not only he did he download my password file, he also ran it through a cracker, which means during the time that his resources are trying to crack my password file, he can't use those resources to crack anyone else's. And so I'm wasting his time. 
How much time did he spend looking over my site for a login place? Which, by the way, I really need to make a login place for them to use these passwords. I haven't done that yet. Moreover, when he wrote into me, now I have the name and the IP address of the person associated with who got my password file. And so I can look at what other attacks was he trying. Mm-hmm. So now it's uh, intelligence that I'm gathering. I know who attacked me. So what you can do then, is, in a way, you've kind of created a honey token, right? Yes. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with that term, how, how would you explain a honey token to somebody? Boy, you just threw me. <laughs> okay, I'll give you the answer. All right. Then you can say, sure, G. Mark, that sounds great. If you will, it's like a booby-trapped file. What would happen then is we look at the whole the old HoneyNet project that was done uh, back in the day and the whole idea of creating honeypots is that you provide non-valuable business information and you make it look like it's useful, but it's not the type of information that has any legitimate business use. So the metric for it is no legitimate business use for yes. anything that begins with the word honey. And so then a honey you know, file, honey token, if you will, is a particular file that is designed to basically act as a decoy. Now, you should never be there, but if you are there, then fine, all, you know, gloves are off and we can have some, we can have some fun with you. All right. So you've gone a little bit farther than just simply have a, uh, a robots.txt file, right? Correct. If I just block them, then all they're going to say is oh, you don't have a password file, then how about some other types of files? Whereas if I give them something to chew on, they're going mm-hmm. to go off and they may stop scanning. Another example is WordPress. I don't run WordPress. It's not on any of my sites, but my site is constantly being hammered by bots looking for WordPress logins. Mm-hmm. And so since you can't really play with those bots, I mean, if you give them a honeypot, they'll go scanning it. But instead, I just use it for if I see someone coming in for it, I ban them immediately. And most scan suites, they'll start off with WordPress and then they'll go on to other things. And so by blocking them at WordPress, they can't scan me for anything else. Now, that's really useful information. So for folks who are running their own website as compared to, let's say, outsourcing it to a third party, or even if they're outsourcing it, they can say, hey, this is one of the requirements I want to have is to be able to say, if you get WordPress type of scans, particularly if you don't have a WordPress site, then that's a pretty good indicator that that's a bad actor there. And now when you, you want to just ban them outright, because one of the things I don't like doing is screwing around with people coming from the outside, because if mm-hmm. they're inside your network, then they're fair game and they expect to be screwed with. But it's the same thing like collecting threat intelligence. If you're going to collect threat intelligence inside your network, do whatever you got to do. But externally, I don't recommend that CISOs go ahead and roll up their sleeves on a Friday night and go ahead and and fire up their VPN or their Tor browser and try to poke around in the dark web pretending, hi, I am a hacker. I am looking for evil things. Can you help me, please? Uh, because then they're just going to kind of like, screw you guys. We're going to come up and come on after you. So do you see a, have you seen any uh, repercussions? Anybody coming back at you as a result of doing these types of things? Or do you, have you found out that for the most part, it wastes their time it makes them kind of discouraged a little bit, you know, and then they finally go like, hey, screw it. This is just place not worth it. Uh, usually what I, uh, the vast majority of the time they give up. A few people have seen that my site will, it bans people who, for example, uh, violate my terms of service. And mm-hmm. when I say ban, it's a temporary, uh, you can't connect me. Maybe uh, depending on the ban, uh, it will profile your system. Maybe it's your browser, maybe it's your computer, maybe it's something else. And I won't let you connect to me 
for a limited amount of time because you match this profile of someone who just attacked me. Mm -hmm. Fail to ban is another uh, fun way of doing this. You create a fail to ban rule that watches your logs. And if it sees a certain entry in the log, for example, this person's currently attacking, it'll block the IP address for 10 minutes, an hour, something like that. Yeah, and, and again, of course, blocking the bad actors, there's nothing wrong with that. But one of the things we always kind of face when we're taking active measures is not the concern about the um, the false negatives. I mean, that's a bad guy gets past us, but we have other defenses. We have layers. Right. It's, it's the false positive. Now, it's interesting because if you look at passive defenses, in general, it's the false negatives that are the worst things. That's when we fail to alert on a bad event. And therefore, negative, it's, it's, it's not a problem. It is a problem. It's a false negative. And that means basically the dog bit the mailman or something like that. False positive is, well, the dog's barking at the mailman or something like that. Uh, and he's trying to alert, but you know, not. Or let me actually back up. False negative is when the dog's licking the burglar, right? It's like, <laughs> wow, you, dude, you smell like bacon. Come on in my house. By the way, I happen to know where the lady keeps her jewels. But when we come back, so I stand corrected on that one, but we're not going to edit the show. We're just going to keep on rolling because, hey, people make mistakes. But <laughs> from, from the perspective of looking at the uh, false uh, positive, that's a self-inflicted denial of service. Well, and uh, so think of the false positive this way. There's uh, no way that th there's no links on my sites anywhere that go to Etsy password. There's no mm -hmm. way a user will accidentally stumble across it which means that it's an intentional attack against the site. At which point, then, it is a reasonable business conclusion to say this actor did not have good intent when they went looking for the Etsy password. Therefore, I am not going to allow them to, quote, unquote, do normal business afterward because they've already disqualified themselves, okay? Yeah, yeah, like uh, I'm just going to give them a cool off period, say 10 minutes, 15 minutes, mm -hmm. so that they can give up and go somewhere else. Now, when when what happens at that point? Do they just they can't resolve the DNS, or they've already got your DNS? So, we just a server is just refusing to serve something up. Uh, well, fail to ban, for example, create a firewall rule that simply says this IP address is not allowed to connect in, or this IP address with this port is not allowed to connect in. And so what happens then is they, they try to do a TCP connection. They do a SYN. They don't, even get, they don't get back a reset. They don't get back a SYN act. They just get... Dead silence. They have to time out. Nothing. And then it times out and things like that. Yeah. Have you ever put a Rick Astley video in there or something like that? Well, Rick rolled them? Funny that you say that. I was getting people who were looking for my archive backup. You mm -hmm. know, uh, just blind guessing, just, do they have a file called source.whatever and archive.whatever and so on. And I put one out there for them because I, if they really want the file, then I should give it to them. And it took me you know, minutes to throw to get this together. And when they, one person, I mean, in, in the last year, no one has downloaded this. Last year, three people downloaded it. And uh, COVID. Exactly. Yeah. So they download this archive file that they think is my uh, website. They unpack it inside. It's another uh, archive file. And except that that one doesn't actually, it's not actually a zip. It's not actually an RAR or anything else. It's actually an MP4. And if they play it, it's the Rick Astley video. Okay, fine. Hopefully not violating any copyright or terms of services. It's probably fair use claimed under it's, U.S. copyright. Well, you're allowed to do it. Uh, fair use includes teaching and I'm teaching them a lesson. 
Alrighty, I like that. Yeah. You know, you know, when you start to say you got a, a you know, file and a file and things like that, I'm thinking it's uh, it's kind of like zips all the way down. Oh. And there is actually a tool for that, right? Yes. Or there's a, a construct. What is that? Oh, uh, you're talking like a zip bomb. Yeah, a zip bomb. Now I know what it is, but you do. But maybe not everybody has heard of a zip bomb. So what's a zip bomb, and how do you uh, how do you put them on the menu? Oh well, a zip bomb. Uh, there's a couple of different ways to do it, but the basic concept is it's an unlimited tree. So a zip file that unpacks itself, and each mm-hmm. time you unpack it, you keep getting the same file. So if you're just recursively unpacking, you're eventually going to run out of disk space because it's going to suck up everything you've got. So essentially, it just uses up all the system resources. Now that sounds an awful lot like something called a fork bomb as well. Yes. And both of these have a ca- uh, instance of recursion. I think you look in the dictionary under recursion, you see recursion, you kind of get the idea. But it would then work in so far as a process calls the same process, which calls the same process and things like that. I remember after DEF CON one year, I was on the shuttle bus over in San Diego. I was getting ready to ride, and I noticed the guy next to me had a tattoo. It was a pretty complex one. And in there, I was like, hey, that's a fork bomb in there. And the guy looked at me and says, you're the only person to ever figure that out. And I says, well, after all, I am the voice of Hacker Jeopardy, and I can clean up. So anyway, the idea of a zip bomb or a fork bomb allows one to potentially take out a system through recursion. Now, kids, don't try this at home, but here's a fork bomb for Windows in case you're wondering. It's only five characters. So do this on a machine you don't care about or a virtual machine. Percent zero, pipe, percent zero. And that's going to continue to replicate until it fills up the whole system. Now, don't do that at home or at work. It's kind of a career-limiting move. I'm writing this down. And and so what we have then is we take a look at what's out there. We have kind of a hostile environment. It's reasonable to assume as security professionals that not every entity that tries to connect to us that wants to send us something is uh, favorable. There is a fine line between what's allowed and what's not allowed, but you haven't really done any active countermeasures. You haven't gone back and done hack back or anything like that or, or blasted anybody with a whole bunch of uh, DDoS arrays. Well, actually... I do have some self-defense mechanism. I used to run this Tor service that relayed traffic to the Internet Archive. Mm-hmm. And the problem is you get these open source intelligence bots that go through and they're trying to index everything. So they're trying to basically scan the entire Internet Archive through my little proxy. It's going to take a while. Yeah, uh, they were uh, almost no humans were using this proxy, but tons of bots and they were consuming most of my bandwidth. And so I was looking for ways to profile them. And you know, over tour, you're, everyone's supposed to look the same. They're supposed to be anonymous. Mm-hmm. I found a couple of different ways to identify specific individuals or specific types of bots over tour. And for some of them, I cut them off. For others, uh, I found this one set of bot. Uh, they were coming in trying to mirror the entire Internet archive. And I noticed that they were accepting GZIP uh, or uh, in compressed files. And GZIP mm-hmm. has like a 1,032 to 1 compression rate. So I can send them a 100K file and they get a gig. And with one of the bots, I sent them a couple of gigs and they stopped scanning me. So you know that the zip bomb uh, managed to blow them up and they stopped attacking. Yeah. And of course, zip bombs work either because of recursion or for those. And at some point, I might do a whole show on compression and things like that. You can't compress everything. And in fact, Encrypted data doesn't impress, does not compress well. Yep. And, and that's because what you've done is you've really changed 
information content. We'll get into the, the idea of the entropy of it, but essentially, uh, and, and this is a little kind of kind of parenthetical. Someone says, "Are you going to compress and encrypt?" The answer is yes, in that order, because if you encrypt first and then try to compress, if you had a halfway decent encryption algorithm, there's going to be no patterns left, and there's nothing. You can't get a toehold in there. It's as if to say, hey, can you compress one billion letter A's? Well, that's pretty simple. You just say, give me you know, one E9 times A, and then I'm done. Right. As compared to having to have, can you do one billion characters that are all completely different? Uh, another one of those open source intelligent bots, I noticed that they were looking for dot onion addresses to stay within the Tor network, but who else can they get to? Mm -hmm. And since they were sucking up a lot of my bandwidth, I wanted to stop them. As they came in, I didn't give them whatever page they were asking for. I gave them a page of 100 randomly generated right then uh, dot, uh, addresses that look like dot onions. And they're, you'd have to time out on each one of them. And they had to realize. time out on each one of them. And as I'm watching them come in, first they were coming in fast, then they started coming a little slower. Then they started coming in very slower. Then instead of being you know 20 requests per second, they were doing one request per hour. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you could tell that they flushed their cache because they came in again at high speed and then very quickly began to slow down as they hit the same problem. Later that same year, at uh, our a mutual friend, uh, Joe Klein, went to the Black Hat Briefings Conference. He was wandering around the vendor area and he saw a vendor who specialized in open source intelligence on Tor, on .onion networks. And he looked at their description of what they did and it looked just like what I had <laughs> described the attacker as doing. And so he walked up to them and said, did you guys just recently flush your cache and rewrite your systems because you were getting slower and slower? And the vendor looks at him and said, how did you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's Joe. Joe knows everything. Yeah. He's been a guest on the show, of course. And of course, now we have a name that we can put to the specific attacker. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so can uh, it, it can't be like... I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. I can't give you those <laughs> files. We can, we can go back and personalize them. Now, another thing that's probably interesting, so, so kind of summarizing this section, so we can move on to some other areas, is that if you're yeah. running your own website uh, or your business is running a website as a security leader, there's some, if you will, jujitsu to put in there. It's relatively low cost. That is to say, it does not require somebody actively doing this all the time. At the first layer of defense could be the robots.txt file. And it's interesting because when you look at robots.txt, what that is is that goes into the home directory of a website and it tells well-behaved spiders or crawlers what to look for, what not to look for. Now, a traditional robots.txt has a whole bunch of disallow. All right. Well, in a way, you're sort of spelling out here are all the places you we don't want you looking at. And I go to banking sites all the time and I pull those up there and it's, it's got disallow client banking, disallow internal customers, this disallow, blah, blah, blah. It's like, seriously guys, can't you do this inside out? And so there are constructs where you can actually say allow. And then what you can do is instead of saying, here is all the good stuff you're not supposed to be looking at, what you can do is just say, here are all the places we just are going to allow you to look at and leave it at that. So a robots.txt, it advertises all the different links that you have. Mm -hmm. And a lot of bots will go through and they don't care if it's an allow or deny, they will go and try to index it. So one of the cute little tricks you can do is to put in a link in there to an automatically ban you URL. Mm -hmm. And this way, if a bot harvests your robots.txt, they walk that bad URL, 
they are immediately cut off because you said that is a bad URL. Don't go there. A regular human's not going to make that mistake. And so again, we're back to kind of the concept of a honey token where we booby trapped a file. Yes. There's no legitimate business use for a somebody going after a deny line in a robots.txt. So it's a great way to kind of go ahead and put a low hanging, if you will, honey token out there to go ahead and block the poor, you know, basically the amateurs. They're going to hit that. They're going to stumble into like, bang, okay, that was a problem. Now, if they're smart, what they're going to do is they're going to just come in and they're going to pick a different IP address and go, okay, fine. We're just going to sidestep that one. So we can't just rely on that completely. The Etsy password file, again, doesn't cost you anything to put it up there. People download it. What's interesting, and I don't know the answer to this one, is that what is the, you know, this could have different efficacies on different groups, probably less so with professional APTs from nation states than it will be from average small crackers and things such as that. But one caveat that I would definitely put out there for anybody considering some of your jujitsu out there <laughs> is talk with legal. Make sure that you talk it over with your legal department and say, hey, here's what I'm, I'm doing. Okay, this is not like putting a landmine in your lawn and it says, you know, stay off the grass. And if somebody doesn't follow the sign, you blow them up. Okay, that's just something you're not allowed to do. All right. But kind of the digital equivalent of hey, we're going to lock you out if you try to go through this door that says do not enter, but we're not going to leave you there over the weekend where you can starve to death or freeze or something because this is just digital, right? So from that perspective, we're okay. Now, another issue that a lot of organizations are facing has to do with the integrity of the information that's going out, not just kind of going to their website, but blog entries, people posting on social media, official things such as that. And I'm sure you've thought a little bit about that as well. So what, what have you run into in terms of things such as uh, you know, people trying to either masquerade as you in a destructive way? And then can we extend that in general for so, organizations? You know, it, it's one thing to put up these traps to stop just the regular everyday attackers. It's another thing to stop someone who's specifically targeting you. Mm -hmm. Many years ago, uh, I've run this blog. I've had it for uh, decades. I had a hacker who was taking the text from my blog rewriting some of the text to be offensive, and then spoofing my email address and posting it as me to a security forum. And the first time he, didn't, uh, he did it, I didn't even realize he had done it for about two days. Then I started getting feedback. And a lot of people knew that, it, just look at the text, I had been spoofed, it was not from me. They could compare the text in the posting to the text on my blog, it was not the same. The second time he did it, I realized this is going to be an ongoing attack. So I created a special blog entry just for him. The third one went out and it had words that changed depending on who read it. And so this allowed me to actually timestamp when the blog was accessed by someone. And of course, he again took that third blog entry, rewrote it to be offensive, posted it as me, but it had those marks in it. And now I had his IP address. And I could go back through the logs and see every time he retrieved my uh, blog, I could see specific patterns to his access. I could see specific patterns to his browser and I could uh, distinctly, effectively, uniquely identify him. So at that point, I put out a fake blog that only he saw. To him, I never updated my blog entry. To everyone else in the world, I was blogging twice a week. And this went on for a month. He was coming in, seeing that it didn't change and going on. And then, one day, uh, looking through the logs, it was absolutely beautiful. He came in 
And I started getting alerts that he was hitting my website and reloading. Mm -hmm. Then someone from Florida came in. And then he came in again and Florida came in again. And then he relayed through Florida. I was looking for two profiling attributes. When he relayed, he only had one of them. So he actually saw the updated blog. And that's when he realized that it's not just uh, that I'm writing, uh, that I have this trap set up. It's that the trap is specifically set up for him. And that's when this level of harassment stopped. Uh, This goes with the basic saying of, when people think they're anonymous, they do bad things. Mm-hmm. But if you take away the anonymity, they stop doing bad things. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and I, I think that's almost a social condition that we've found in the world of social media where people will say mean, miserable, nasty stuff behind a keyboard that they would never say face to face. Mostly because they don't get punched in the nose or, or something along those lines. But really, it, the civility has gone out. And so in a way, there's ways to sort of you know, affect that without having to go ahead and break any rules or break any laws. So let's try to scale this thing up in a corporate world. If a company has a corporate website, all right, fine, they're controlling that. If they have their own blog site that they're running, now they should be kind of in charge of that. But what you're talking about then is people posing as a member in either a forum or some other location where the company's reputation, in your case, your reputation, is being soiled because somebody's saying something that's not really you. And what you're able to do then in that particular case is freeze out that one actor for at least for a while, and they just figure like, yeah, this is just not worth going after. But if we're looking at a more sophisticated opponent, an advanced persistent threat, for example, APT being a state or a nation-funded entity where these people show up and they work a eight-hour shift, and when they hand over, it's morning, Ralph, morning, Sam. They punch the time clock. They try to go ahead and break in. Did you get any deal stuff? Nope, all right, good luck. Have a good night shift, and I'll talk to you in the morning. And they just keep on coming, and they just keep on coming. Therefore, a lot of what you've offered is some great ideas, but eventually they're not going to get discouraged and say, yeah, this is guy's too tough of a target. Because if we're going after a defense contractor or somebody who has intellectual property or financial organization, they're just going to keep on coming. And as a result, do you eventually have to say we're going to run out of stuff or any thoughts that you have that essentially create a high enough barrier to entry where it either keeps the bad guys out or creates a long enough runway of an early alert that you know, hey, let's go ahead and do something about it and never let them get to the good stuff. Uh, that's where a lot of this comes in. I mean, uh, watch if someone's going to attack you, even if it's like an APT, first thing they're going to do is they're going to scan you. Mm-hmm. Now, they're going to not they're not going to scan you from their system. They're going to use some cloud service provider or something like that. But before you can attack, you have to do reconnaissance. And so the question is, can you spot the reconnaissance when it's happening? If you're just blocking things that are not supposed to be there, you're never going to notice it. But if you start playing games like this, then you can start noticing the people who are either just wanting to get something or who are specifically wanting to get something from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we kind of... You know, you think about the Lockheed Martin cyber kill chain. I got to mention Lockheed Martin because I got a trademark on that. If you don't say that, you owe them a nickel every time or a quarter. Uh, and if you take a look at it, where they do the reconnaissance 
weaponization, delivery, exploitation, installation, command and control, and action on objectives. And one of the real criticisms that people have had on the block mark kill chain, if we just use that as a, a shortcut, is that as defenders, we really don't get a whole lot of insight in those first couple rounds, reconnaissance and weaponization. It's not until the delivery where something shows up as an email with an attachment, that's when we can kick in. But in a way, the attackers have had a whole bunch of time to preposition, select the right correct weapons, know the entry point, do their OSINT, their open source intelligence research. And what you're suggesting is that we can easily move to the left, if you will, farther ahead in the time frame and start interfering or at least start detecting at the recon level. And if they think that they're being noticed at the recon, little script kitties out there, they're going to uh, give up. But the, the APTs, what it's going to tell them is they just need to up their game. But they're not going to be able to come through with just the regular everyday thing, because if we're spotting them at the recon, what else are we spotting? It adds in that big level of question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and typically, it's not a linear attack. It's, it's not a, I, I haven't seen anybody describe the, the Lockmark kill chain as a waterfall methodology. Right. Okay, we're done with the recon. We're never going to have to do recon again. We've signed off on that part of the contract. Let's go ahead and move on to the weaponization. And so this is going to be an ongoing factor, an ongoing cycle. And for organizations who have not faced an APT, one of the things they need to start thinking about is what are you doing to identify your potential attackers at the reconnaissance phase. And a lot of what we've been talking about today, much of that is way up there in the recon phase where we're screwing around with people, messing with them, ability to go ahead and initially find out, possibly banning them or blocking them, serving up some fake or at least different content for folks early on. And this is before they've really gotten into the roll up the sleeves and let's try to go ahead and break something on your site. Right. Um, so for an amateur, they get discouraged and go away. For a mid-level, they might get angry at you, but they might not be able to do a whole lot. But for the APT, they're like, okay, let's go on. And then it's like the matrix, like, come on, bring it on. And, and I am certainly not challenging them. I hope they don't attack my sites. No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that. But what I want to avoid doing is creating a situation where people said, hey, I listened to CISO Tradecraft, and they said we should do this, this, or this. And all of a sudden, boom, they go ahead and they get lit up like a Christmas tree. Uh, with the DDoS attack, because they said, well, I guess the bad guys didn't like what we did. Now, uh, I, I've had a couple of DDoS attacks against my servers, and none of them so far have been related to these games. Mm -hmm. You know, like on photo forensics, I allow people to upload pictures and people will discuss them for analysis. The very first DDoS I had, someone didn't like what was being discussed in some forum that's not even associated with me. But they tried to attack my site to take down the picture so it couldn't be discussed. Interesting. Well, let's go back to that. We mentioned that early, early on, and we kind of skipped past that in the digital media analysis and the photo forensics. Because to a large extent, I don't know if that always falls into a core CISO responsibility. But it's fascinating, and there may actually be some good things in there. So tell me a little bit more about it. So I, I have a picture, and I look at it, and I go, is, is, is it real or is it not real? Uh, you know, I, I see somebody who looks like they're you know, something pretty obvious, like this 900 you know, foot long shark trying to bite somebody hanging off of a helicopter over San Diego Bay or something like that. Okay, that's <laughs> but some of these things look plausible. And how do we detect the real from the fake? Is it 
scanning around and sort of like a soft hash to say, well, I can match up this upper third and this right third of the, you know, how does that work? Most of what uh, photo forensics does, uh, so there's the public side and there's the commercial side. Mm -hmm. the, uh, not that I'm trying to do product pushing here or anything. On the public side, there's uh, things like air level analysis where you can look at the compression, it's a compression map of the picture. Mm -hmm. Since JPEGs distort and lose uh, quality, uh, lose fidelity as they're re-encoded, any edit is going to be appear as being at a higher quality than the rest of the picture. Hmm. And so uh, air level analysis just shows you that map and you can say, well, this entire area right here is the area that's at a different compression rate than the rest of the picture. And so you can detect and edit that way. Uh, another thing you can do is you can look at the metadata. You know, it, uh, pictures from a camera have a lot of rich metadata, your type of camera, date, time, all that information. Pictures from Facebook have none of that. Hmm. And so where did the picture come from? You start asking, you know, you start tracing it back. Uh, I'm not going to trust a picture that comes from uh, Facebook or Twitter or anything else because I don't know the authoritative source. Those are not authoritative sources. So anything on Facebook or Twitter, just totally disregard. It's not real. It's fake news. You know, well, let's but, go with that. <laughs> all right. Or at least it needs further validation. Is what Correct. You're suggesting. Right. Yeah. No, uh, I, uh, Facebook, you don't create a picture on Facebook. You upload a picture to Facebook. So the question is, where did the picture come from? And mm -hmm. you have to trace it back. Did it come from an authoritative source or did it come from someone who was modifying the image and changing it? Is it a picture that is valid but was taken out of context? There's Creative cropping is uh, one of the ones that you see often. I had seen this picture of a child uh, running down uh, the street and uh, just with looking at the picture it looks like he's running and he's happy but if you uncrop it you see he's being chased by a crowd with machetes okay yeah that's a misinterpretation of uh, facial expression yeah but uh and so of course the news media cropping and even for professional photographers cropping is everything you go ahead and you take a look at the eisenstadt photograph of the sailor kissing the lady in the v uh, day parade back in 1945 and you zoom back out a little bit and then you can see other guys kind of looking at her and smiling and things like that but they just really want to focus in on that so you can't you can always crop down but you can't uncrop unless somebody accidentally left stuff there when a photograph is taken does the original borders remain that is to say is there like a little one by one pixel border in there or do the how do you how do you tell that it's been cropped a couple of ways First, there could be a small border. A JPEG, for example, will retain a border along the right side or along the bottom, but it's only at most uh, like eight pixels. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking a lot of content, but you can see at least a little bit of content. What another way is a JPEG compresses using a grid pattern. And so if someone crops off the top or the right, the grid shifts. And so you can often detect that the grid shifted. Hmm. And sometimes you can even detect how much it shifted by. And so that'll tell you that it was cropped by a minimum of this many pixels. It could have been a lot more, but a minimum of this many pixels. Interesting. So we can tell this. Of course, I'm thinking if someone says, hey, I took this picture with my cell phone and the metadata says it's a iPhone X, whatever X or N, I guess, whatever number is. You could say, well, hey, what are the resolutions and what are the image sizes that come out of an iPhone? And you could very quickly say, hey, wait a minute, this is a, you know, this doesn't match that. So we, we already know it's 
it's cropped. There's nothing wrong with cropping, but you're talking more about either aftermarket or malicious or tampering. And so as a result, if organizations are trying to defend themselves, something shows up or a person that said, hey, we're accusing you of doing something, then the important thing is, is just because it's a picture doesn't necessarily mean it's it's real. And this is not even deep fakes. We're not into Correct. people creating that level of sophistication. But it's interesting because the metadata that you had mentioned, if you remember Robin Sage from a few years ago, which is an artificial character, it was set up with a rather attractive young lady who I guess had a couple master's degrees that by the time she was 20. There's enough in there that was, just didn't make sense. When I tell people, connect to me on LinkedIn, I've got over 3,000 connections. There's security professionals, military professionals. I have uh, no salesmen. I have no headhunters. And I have no graduate students from countries I can't pronounce. And <laughs> having been in security for a number of years, I possibly was on the Robin Sage list, but I just never connected. It's like, I don't know this person, and I'm not going to go any further than that. But for those who did, I think what unraveled it, as I recall the way it went, is that some um, lonely soldier over there in the sandbox had sent back some photographs, which had embedded in there things like lat long, and like, yeah, that doesn't correlate to a known U.S. base, but yet in the background is a U.S. base. Oops, this thing has gone too far. Stop the clock, stop the problem, and, and the experiment right there. Uh, so there are things that we could be doing to look at it that way and make sure that it doesn't get out of, out of hand. Uh, at Photofronts, we had a picture of someone, uh, it was a, a bunch of marijuana, and there was GPS location that specifically identified a house. Mm -hmm. And I started looking and I thought, the GPS doesn't look right. Uh, someone had tampered with the picture, digitally added in GPS. Mm -hmm. And by having this uh, fake GPS information, they were hoping it'd be leaked out to the police to get someone arrested or to have mm -hmm. someone go swat their house. Okay, but I guess the palm trees up in uh, northern uh, Minnesota didn't work out too well for the resolution? or Well, it was simply how they faked it. Uh, there were easy clues to tell that this was a faked picture. Right. And so when we went back to the law enforcement, we basically said, this is, you know, the person's not necessarily at that house. Now, that's not going to stop them from kicking the door because something's going on. Mm -hmm. But the evidence doesn't support uh, that there was something actually there. Yeah, and, and there's a whole bunch of things that we could have to do correctly and things like that. I remember one time somebody telling me that uh, it was an early crypto miner, and the cops are outside one time, and it's like, you know, they're basically infrared scanning. He said, your garage is really hot. You must be running a hot house. He said, no, I actually got a whole bunch of servers in there. He says, you want to come in and take a look? And the cops are like, you're letting us in? He says, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing growing in here. He says, what are you doing? I'm mining Bitcoin. What's a Bitcoin? Now, this is back in the day when you could do it in your garage. You didn't have to go ahead and recruit an entire uh, you know, hydroelectric project someplace uh, to go ahead and power it. I don't, you know, this has been fun. We're almost at the end of our time frame, and this is just kind of rolling. We could probably do this uh, another 45 minutes or easily or so, but, but let's kind of wrap it up a little bit. Any thoughts that you'd like to recommend for security professionals to think about how to have a little bit of fun and games with the bad guys without really getting them angry at you, without really invoking any legal department uh, stuff? A lot of people say that doing these games like this are a waste of time, but it's really not. It's in, it's allowing you to identify a way to waste a lot of the attacker's resources, a lot of their time, to make them give up or hopefully to discourage them from uh, continuing on. It's also an option for herd immunity, like uh, the password file. I'm serving up a fake one. If a bunch of people served up fake password files, say 100,000 people, 
it wouldn't be worth uh, the effort for all the scanners to go out because every password file they'd get would be a fake one. Yeah, or, or it'd be enough fake out there, just not even worth the effort. They have to change your techniques. Yep. Um, that's that's a really great idea. So I love it. Neil, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I think it's wonderful. And so uh, wrapping up, this is G. Mark Hardy with CISO Tradecraft. Again, thank you very much for tuning in. Hopefully we've given you some really good ideas here and some of the stuff you could try at home, some don't try at home. Uh, but until next time, please go ahead and follow us on LinkedIn and be part of our audience, share with others where you got your good information and stay safe.